Thanks for listening to a podcast from WSUM. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of WSUM, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Hello, and welcome to our first official episode of the MJLC Abolitionist Roundtable. My name is Anna Nelson. I'm going to be one of the hosts today. Um, And today we're joined with a couple of our study group members. Do you all want to introduce yourselves? Sure, yeah. Uh, My name is Cree. I'm also a member of MJLC study group and eboard. My name is Nate. I am a member of the MJLC study uh, group. Um, My name is Nat, and I'm also a member of the study group. Beautiful. Well, thank you all for being here today. Today, I think we're going to jump pretty much right into it. Um, We're going to be focusing on strikes. So our MJLC, both for our study group and for our magazine, is themed as resistance this semester. So we're focusing on all of the the different forms of resistance, what it looks like, what they mean, what their purposes are, and ultimately, what what does effective resistance look like? So... This past Tuesday, our study group met and talked about strikes as our first form of resistance. And we're going to give a couple definitions, talk about some examples, and yeah, ultimately answer that question of what does an effective strike look like. So, does anyone want to jump in first with a a little definition of what strikes means to you? So for me, when I think of strikes, I, I think about labor unions. I think about refusing to work uh, as a collective. I think um, there's typically a goal in mind. You know, they're petitioning for uh, certain rights or certain goals within their institution that they feel have not been met properly by their employers. And so to me, striking is intentionally withholding your labor until proper guidelines or proper, what's the word I'm looking for? Proper treatment, yes, proper treatment is met or given. Yeah, I guess kind of going along with that, I've seen a lot of things about, too, the idea of, like, you know, it's about, um, you know, economic advances and, like, rights, but also it kind of ties into the fact that it's about, you know, people trying to demanding respect and dignity kind of along with it. Yeah, I kind of see this at like larger process of negotiation. So we're going to be walking through some examples. And in some of them, it's kind of unclear when strikes begin, when they end, the official like withholding of labor. But before and after the withholding of labor, too, it's basically just like a large negotiation between two different powers and like acknowledging what powers (coughs) each side has, whatever the players have, what they need from each other, how they're reliant on each other. Um, So it's really about that negotiation and coming to an agreement. I guess maybe as a little warm-up, before we get into the big strikes that we're going to talk about in Madison, does anyone have any, like, favorite strikes in mind? Of just, like, when you think of strikes, what do you initially think of? I think what's on a lot of people's mind right now was the WGA, Writers Guild strikes that happened recently. Um, You know, I, I think they've recently approached the conclusion of that but it was it was very apparent when it was going on and I think it really showed the sort of scale that these strikes can have the power they can have um, you know specifically in the context of the WGA there was so much to approach so much to encroach there was the lack of you know payments the lack of proper, treatment of the hours that these that these writers had to go through and there was also 
the threat of AI, which, you know, is is coming for a lot, a lot, or is a, a threat that's coming through a lot of people's minds right now. And the way they were able to efficiently handle this conversation just by saying, uh, we are not going to give you this labor until you come to the meeting floor with us, uh, I thought was very powerful. And that's what comes to mind for me. To talk about AI, too, I think is really interesting. As as a graphic designer, I can see a lot of that has come into play. And I could, I can like, seeing the talks that they had there and the fact that it was such a big item, I think it sets a huge precedent for things in the future and the way that they were able to kind of work it out. I think a lot of what they were able to uh, kind of sort out was the usage of AI belonging in the hands of the writers, like the people who are doing the work and not allowing it to be something that people higher up could use to kind of screw them for lack of a better yeah. term for that. It comes down to the idea of dignity that like what you like the work that you create should be yours and like you should have some say over or you should get some credit for it and so like the notion that people could be using their work without crediting them or giving them any compensation um, sort of speaks to like the lack of dignity that they were fighting against and similarly like when you first asked the question I thought about that that like promotional video for the um, WGA strikes where they're like and there was an increase in 40% in our leaders salaries but we barely got any like we got a much smaller increase I'm not remembering the exact but it was nowhere near comparable <coughs> so sort of just highlighting the unfairness and in, in treatment um, I think is a big part of strikes yeah that's yeah. gonna be like just such a brilliant historical example of a collective it was just like so widespread and I think it's a little bit I don't know if ironic is the right, right word, but like when we're talking about technologies and the fact that this is a strike, not against AI, but like so intertwined with the idea of new AI technology. And at the same time, it's like the reason I think that this strike was so effective was because of the media and other forms mm -hmm. of technology that were able to like get them to this like such mass media um, awareness and connection. I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there was. I think there was intentionality with that as well. I think. I think <clears throat> they were being, um, especially, conscientious of the public eye in this in this strike. You know, I mean, even I, of course, felt sort of the intensity by which the vigor uh, mm -hmm. that they were they were approaching this cause with the imagery that we saw in the media and the videos, uh, the the representation they had from high-profile figures, I think all of that went into the, the, what we saw, the representation that was available to the public eye. I mean, President Biden also, like, they were like, don't you want our support? Like, they, they were also, like, very politically savvy about it. I don't know if... I think that relates to, to, like, the media point, too. But another thing that's, like, fascinating to me about strikes is just the amount of collective agreement. Like, there also had to be media used to get the public to strike. Because, like, you sacrifice a lot when you strike, too. Like, you have to have some belief that you'll get somewhere or, like, believe strongly enough in the cause. 
What's particularly interesting with the WGA strike was the the statements that we saw from the corporations that the writers were dealing with. Uh, I don't I don't remember exactly which institution it was that or a corporation that made the statement, but an exec at one of these statements or one, at one of these corporations made the statement that you know they were going to wait them out. And however that you know became publicly available, I think that was extremely influential to the perception of this cause to see very publicly, you know, no like behind the scenes, just up front the the dismissal of the importance of these people's labor, I think I think directly contributed to the popularity of it for sure. Yeah, I think like the ability to you know, the modern ability of the internet and social media, I feel like has allowed that kind of organization to be more successful than really, you know, like a lot of points in history. And I think that's true. Like we can really see that in the way that that sort of stuff is more obvious and people are able to kind of garner a lot of support and attention for a movement like this. Yeah, it's also been, they've like both been successful and at least not in getting everything they want, but I think it's, it makes me very optimistic. Like I just saw this morning that the UAW has gotten some concessions from Ford that like made it so their wages were higher, like that they allowed um, uh, battery plant workers to be paid more. Um, so I think there's like been a lot of positive stuff that's come out of it, which is very good given the political climate. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I think if you guys don't mind, I think that's a pretty good transition point too to sort of use this little warm-up example of the Writers Guild to look at what was so successful about this strike, what maybe hindered their success, and apply this sort of reflection that we have on this example to some more tangible examples that are like in our Madison or UW-Madison community right now. Um, is that okay if we transition to that? For sure, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, what do y'all want to talk about first? We have two pretty prevalent strikes that are going on, or borderline strikes, if you want to call it. Um, the teacher's assistant strike at UW, and then also the Starbucks union that's happening. Do we have any preferences? I'm going to talk about either. I think we can, we can start with the teacher's association. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So in looking at this example, I think it's really important in strikes to sort of break down exactly who our key players are, what their interests are, what their demands are, um, and then we can sort of go into the, this sort of this normative, you know, what should they do argument. Um, so, does anybody want to help me break down the context for this strike and identify who's in it? Yeah, I can do that. So, currently, the the TAA is striking the teachers' uh, assistance uh, labor union. It kind of represents a lot of the graduate students at UW Madison. Currently, I think one of the biggest like the biggest kind of thing they're talking about is they get a maximum of four weeks of unpaid leave for kind of like the general departments there. Like it's underpaid, overworked, definitely mistreated. And there was kind of that, I believe it was a bill trying to be passed, right, for the, um, for them to get 12 weeks of paid family leave, pa yeah. paid family leave, sorry. But that was an, ended up being shot down and is, currently the demand of the TAs, but I know that they've been kind of worked on that for a while. Yeah, so this has definitely been, 
you know, in the media, in the conversation for quite some time and definitely in legislation as well. Um, but um, Governor Evers has not been able to get that passed through. So it's sort of we're at this standstill of UW-Madison at least doesn't have the money from the government directly for 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave. Um, but could they get money elsewhere? I guess that's a question for us to talk about later. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think, I don't know, also, I guess this is just kind of a question. I don't know if people know, kind of since, like, after there was a lot of kind of stuff in previous years that was kind of shooting down the success of collective bargaining and just the way that teachers and people in that sphere could go about it. And I wonder, I know that there's a different administration for Wisconsin, but whether or not some of those things have lingered and possibly kind of affected the success of strikes like these even kind of way after the fact. Yeah. They, sorry. They don't even have, it's not even that we're at a point where they're already doing the bargaining. Like, they've had to take so many steps just to get to the point where they have power to bargain. It's like, oh my gosh, it's taking forever. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think a, a real struggle with modern strikes in general is the ability to approach a conversation with good faith from both parties because a lot of times with these organizations, there is incentive to sort of restructure the way they work, you know, strategically in order to sort of solve the problem without having to go all the way, if that makes sense. Um, I don't, I don't think, uh, no, I'm not trying to say like it's, it's always directly in the form of union busting or anything, but there are other ways to, uh, for these organizations to approach these goals without, um, needing to ha give up, you know, concede all the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think, I think nowadays they're very much incentivized to do so. Can you expand on that in the context of UW-Madison? I really, yeah, I find that super interesting. So in the context of UW-Madison, something that we discussed about in study group was the ability to reorganize the way TEAs, teaching assistants, um, work, you know, uh, whether that's increasing the size of, of the, the classroom in which they would teach, you know, having more students. Um, which makes things more impersonal, and uh, but it it effectively would allow these uh, it it would solve the the overworking or, you know, it would it would sort be more of time efficient. Be more yes. Not it in would, terms of grading, but it yeah. would make things yeah. It would make it would it would free up, at the very least on paper, their schedule. Um, and 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 tactics like that are a. Or would make it so they were able to, you know, be less spread out, be less dependent on this this collective of of TAs, where there would be more replaceability because there would be, you know, in my mind, less TAs if they're using more TAs for or less TAs for more people, you know, the necessity for TAs would also go down, and that that would, you know, in a way, aid that problem, but it wouldn't aid it in a way that the teaching assistants are looking for. Right. Yeah. Like, I think to expand on that, it was also like, like, obviously, they want more money for paid sick leave, which 
there's like a whole debate we could go into, but the university claims that they don't have enough money to give. So it's like, how can the union come up with other ways to like get better treatment that aren't exactly that demand? Like, could they compromise with like, um, like Nate was saying, like more larger class sizes or more office space or um, like having the university do more to like give them access to other resources to make it more sustainable for them to live on campus like there's like are there other ways like time like getting the university to put more time in them that they may be more likely to do given that money is like such a contentious problem yeah that kind of because i know like obviously beyond that it goes into the fact that they just generally feeling like mistreated and overworked and i think i think that's kind of an aspect that when we were talking about in study group, we had kind of broken down into smaller groups and kind of discussed the way that that would go about. And I noticed just a lot of, at least on our smaller group, I don't know what other people experienced, but the conversation really, really stuck specifically on the idea of the leave and paid leave and where that money would come from. And I think there wasn't a lot of a conversation in our kind of small microcosm of that about just ways to make that sort of the amount of compensation you're getting compared to how much work that they're putting in and how it currently feels unfair and whether or not like what they can do to kind of make that more equal besides just the extra paid leave yeah there's also like a difference between like asking for 12 weeks of paid leave and then being like maybe more strategic about how you go about it like 12 weeks in a row is probably not the best for like if you're trying to teach a course but like you could say 12 weeks total but you shouldn't do all 12 in a row like i feel like because then what about you're eternity just, then i guess you're right yeah screw that <laughs> <laughs> no sorry i didn't mean to like shut yeah, you down on that like I'm maternity just like i don't i guess yeah like maternity should be 12 weeks but like is there a way to like determine for someone to like determine the circumstance whether or not you need like because if because if you're not on maternity leave like there shouldn't just be a bunch of tas taking like a, a month off well without I much i'm me. sorry i didn't mean to oh go ahead I, and i also i don't mean to cut you off no. and i don't mean to shut oh, you, you down you either me. <laughs> uh, but i think i think when it comes to creating stipulations upon upon these these you know forms of leave um, workers' rights, things like that. Um, I'm not going to say that. I'm not saying that there's any malfactors within the UW institution, but you know, broadly, when you when you add stipulations like that, it allows for the corporations to get more power over the laborer than I think is fit for something like that. I think mm -hmm. they should be able to exercise uh, the, those time that time of leave as they see fit. We don't know what circumstances they have going into it. Maternity is not the only exception to the rule, you know, grievance, um, you know, and other outstanding factors, uh, you know, family troubles, illness, all of these things can last longer than an established period of time given by a corporation. And I think as such, to limit it with, you know, specific exceptions in mind puts too much of a constraint upon that freedom yeah fair enough but 12 weeks is also more like it is a lot of weeks like I, I think the the standard is like six to nine 
like in the industry, or at least that's what someone said in the study group yesterday. But so if that were true, I don't know like how effective. Like I, in a perfect world, I believe they should have twelve. But like if we're talking about them being able to get some of their demands met, maybe. I feel like people that have applied to be PhD candidates in grad school, I feel like are so dedicated to what they're doing already at such a high level that I don't really think, or I can't imagine that there would be an issue with people taking all of the potential paid leave without the need for it Mm -hmm. from something that they love doing and that they're really good at and that they've worked really hard to get to. Like, I just don't envision that being an issue, I guess. And I think if there is, you know, this this imaginary person, um, not to say they don't exist, but if there is this person who's going to use it for malicious use or use it improperly, that is the exception, not the standard. And we shouldn't, you know, build rules for for the collective off of one individual actor or, you know, a smaller uh, collective that's not representative of the greater populace. Yeah, I feel like, obviously, we aren't sitting in the room in their discussions, so we don't know exactly what they can or can't agree to. I just thought it was interesting, especially, I guess, on a different tangent, we began talking about the idea of how working as a teaching assistant when you're a grad student falls into the requirements of the degree and how that performing that kind of duty, and yes, it is paid and compensated, but it UW requires it for them to graduate and get that degree. And just, I think there was a lot of discussion, at least in our group, of and the back and forth between whether or not they, like where the right to demand more stuff because that is expected and required of them on top of taking classes and being a student to perform those duties. Can I just interject really quickly? Also, might I add, this is kind of a tangent, but not only are they required to teach, but they are given little to no training on how to teach at all. They're expected to perform this duty that they are not, like, trained on. And I I guess I can't really blame them, but it's just like, Mm -hmm. that's just like one more hypocrisy almost of the university system. Yeah, it's not I'm just, just add that in. Sorry, no, you're right. It's it's not just people who are going to school for education who are performing that. It's it's, it's every grad student. Yeah, I agree. I think I think you kind of hit the uh, nail on the head with that last statement there. A, a really poignant point that was made to me when we last discussed this was how TAs, you know, at, at large are not there. Graduate students are not there to teach a lot of the time they're there to research to explore to specialize in their field and they lose access to that ability when they're being you know mandatorily put into positions where they are not able to exercise the freedom that they may otherwise be able to and professors on the other hand um, are able to do a lot more personal research than I think was true in the past. Uh, it's it's sort of become this this switch of of graduate students, you know, focusing more on the teaching of these courses, and the professors almost taking a step back and being able to do more research. Oh, that's really interesting. I was kind of so maybe I read the letter wrong, but while I like I agree that they should have more leave, I was. A little surprised that that was the focus of the letter given like 
like I don't know like I wonder why they decided to make something so specific the focus instead of like a general appeal to better for better treatment but I actually sorry keep going go go ahead go ahead. I kind of want to argue the opposite I want to ask you guys if the bill or whatever if the legislation legislation to have 12 weeks of paid leave didn't pass why are they asking for it when they know it's going to be something so hard for the university to put together asking for demands that they probably know the university is not going to meet them at i'm curious as to why it was like such a strong claim when you know that negotiation is going to need to happen and i guess we as outsiders can't really see this negotiation (laughs) happening but I'm like, why aren't we talking about all of these other options in the letter? The letter was so specific to the 12 weeks. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I wonder, and I don't mean to put any qualities on the people who are doing this, because I think, you know, they absolutely have the right to do it. I wonder if there is almost a reactionary aspect to it in that the frustration felt when the bill proposed by Evers, you know, failed, almost brought him to the point where it's like, you know, we deserve this and... and they are doing what they think is appropriate to show that this is something they think they deserve. Um, And I I think while, of course, that is their right, I wonder if they have another goal in mind, if they're looking for, you know, some sort of other concession from, from the university or some sort of, you know, public understanding of the gross mistreatment they they have been subjected to um you know there there are a multitude a multiplicity of reasons why they could be making such a strong statement um but i think i think it being in reaction i think is is what initially comes to mind for me why not add more demands too like in all the other strikes we were talking about earlier like I don't know, um, that you don't, oh God, I've just forgotten the abbreviation for the auto workers union. They had like a bunch of demands. Like why only one? That's my question. Like why, why are, like why are, why isn't also, why isn't it also like build more housing for us? Like why is it just the leave? Like. That's a fair question. No, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. Exactly. I'm sure they have whatever kind of discussions they're going about in there, but just Maybe this is a more cynical view on it, but it could also be the aspect of asking for this kind of thing, like 12 weeks, if it's already been shot down, it's the kind of, it's in the zeitgeist, and maybe it's the idea of aiming high, and then, like, you shoot higher, and then during negotiations, when everyone's forced to kind of concede things, then it gets down to more of, like, maybe if they know, and I've said, maybe I'm putting ideas out there that aren't true, but, like, if you know that's not something that's possible, aim high and then as that gets kind of moved down it's still something that people would be happy with yeah like it's like a shoot for the moon even if you fail you land amongst the stars yeah yeah a good compromise leaves everybody mad you know can i ask you all so for those who are listening um our study group did an activity this week that was a structured controversy so we had some people arguing as a representative for UW and some people arguing as a representative for the Teachers Assistant Association. Um, and we had this structured controversy where you had to debate and negotiate and come to terms. After doing this activity that you three did, what do you think would be the most effective 
for the TAA to demand in their letter, if we're sort of uneasy about this single demand of 12 weeks of paid leave. leave. I feel like, at least at our end, given that we don't know the full extent of if you're if we were if you were the person kind of talking to the university you don't actually know what the university is able to financially compensate and i think just given that the goal that maybe we would shoot for that they would shoot for is if that kind of that kind of financial compensation isn't as possible to the extent they wanted focusing more on the idea of making the workplace for TAs and the burden that the university kind of puts on them equal to what they're compensated for now if they feel like they're underpaid and overworked, ultimately making that more equivalent because the university benefits from having them, from having these grad students who are their students who are learning from them to take on these classes and teach undergrads it allows for UW to bring in more undergrads and bring in more revenue, and they're bringing that kind of benefit. And if they're not if they're not able to compensate them fairly, decreasing the amount of stress or work or expectations that are put on the shoulders of the grad students. Yeah, and I think I think their their demands in this case are specifically. I, I think it seems very intentional. A question we've been having is, if the 12 weeks is out of reach, why not go for more? Why not really make demands, really prove that you need more from the university? I think this is a nice Goldilocks circumstance in their mind of, we're not going to be laughed out the door with these demands. These demands are reasonable and even if they're not possible for the university to provide at this time it sets the standard that they are willing to collectivize and fight for something they think they need and it also allows them to actually compromise with the university without there being almost too much on the table if that makes sense um i guess i would I think that they should put like I think strikes are effective because they put pressure on the people in power and you put pressure on people in power by exposing how they're mistreating you and I, I don't think that it's an effective route of doing that to just say the leave I think they're leaving a lot out that they could include that could put pressure on the university. Like with all the effective strikes we've seen recently, they've gone high, like they've demanded a lot. They've demanded um, a lot. They've talked about a lot. They've advertised um, how terrible it is. Um, And I just don't think that the TAA is necessarily following that blueprint super well. If I were them, I would go bigger. I, I I like a lot of what you're saying there. I think something to keep in mind is the value of labor to the the institution they're working for wholesale. For example, with the WGA, the lack of writing across the board was so inextricably linked to the value of those corporations that, for example, the Daredevil show 
is is currently on hiatus entirely because of the strike. You know, we we see high profile figures stopping their talk shows, stopping their podcasts or social media releases uh, due to the pressure put on. I'm not sure the TAs have a comparable amount of power within, at the very least yet, within their institution to make that kind of of demand or series of demands. I mean, every class needs TA. Like, large portion of classes need TAs. The intro classes need TAs. Um, in order for students to have a good experience, you need TAs who can, like, handle the workload. I mean... Of course, but that doesn't mean the writers... The WGAs, you know, uh, uh, at the very, you know, to, to almost lowball it, a national institution, a nationally recognized institution, the, the, the TAA, while they can disrupt, definitely, there's no doubt about the fact that they can disrupt and they can make change, they are not as they can't hold out in the same way the WGA can in my mind. I don't, I don't think they can. I think they have a, a set amount of time that the people who believe this are, you know, in the institution. They also can't, I don't think they can go, well, I don't want to generalize. I'm not sure how long an individual person who is already dealing with student debt uh, can maintain you know, withholding their labor, especially considering if that is necessary for them to graduate. If this puts a hold on their ability to graduate, they're paying more. And they, they, a lot of people, I know I certainly wouldn't be able to afford that one if I was in graduate school. And so I just don't think, I think there are more stipulations here than there are in the WGA, so it's not a one for one. And might I add to the university has other means of achieving their goals in which they do not respond to the strike. Do I think they're effective and should they do them ethically? Of course not. But it's like they have options to get rid of classes that are need TAs and start hosting more lecture seminar style classes that the professor leads the discussion sections instead. They have the power to change the class structures in which we have larger classes and we need less TAs. They have the power to, I don't know, what were some other examples we talked about yesterday? Uh, as we mentioned earlier, with the ability to restructure classes so there's more students per TA, you can create a divide within the TAs where if there are any, if they're not a united front, you can really make it so these, these TAs that are, that are not on board really disrupt the work that would be done. Um, it's, like I said, I keep bringing it back to WGA, but if you have, you know, a small portion of writers that are not specialized to, to this work, I mean, there are specialized graduate students as well, but it, it's, it's their united front, I think, the WGA's united front is a lot more difficult to undermine than the TAA's united front. Um, of course, not that I am advising any sort of undermining uh, when it comes to the, the, the efforts that they're putting forth at all. I don't disagree with you guys. I was just thinking that I think all the things we talked about were like really helpful, and I'm sure that many TAs in the association thought about them too. And I'm just like wondering why they didn't put that in the letter as well.
I think that's a fair question. I think it's a really good, good question. Um, I also, just to throw it in there too, I think this is a really interesting abolitionist conversation as well. Um, in that this whole question of compromising and what do we demand versus our expectations is a huge question in abolition of like, how do we balance short-term and long-term change? How do we balance reformative change versus radical change? What does that look like in terms of pragmatism and these sort of big radical ideas that we're looking for? Yeah. And I think this is a perfect example of that. I don't know if y'all have any thoughts on that in relation to abolition, but. I think it's just hard, like, this is not really gonna answer the question, it's just gonna like make it more of a question. But um, I think it's like hard as like an activist to recognize that like a lot of times you'll have like something you wanna get done and you have to like you can't do exactly what you want right away because of like the political hurdles and you kind of have to play like you you have to think about it yeah a lot what how to get what you want which can be like really frustrating and there's a personal layer as well you everyone's you know going through their own individual lives and and it's very difficult to collectivize when they're in circumstances that sort of you know divide them people are pe everyone has a different you know class to another person if you're working for example with like the Starbucks union uh, there are some people who who need these bills you know or the not these bills but these wages continuously throughout the year in order to maintain their track to be able to finish college in an appropriate time and uh, if if you're and that creates a disconnect it absolutely creates a disconnect yeah, especially, I mean, in the case of Starbucks Union, I know some businesses like that, when they offer benefits for how many hours you work, doing that kind of striking and holding out on labor not only jeopardizes the kind of like immediate wages you would receive, but then future benefits along the line, insurance, maybe uh, tuition reimbursement in some cases, but yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think, I think... You know, for example, the Starbucks on State, um, a, a problem a problem with them being so understaffed is, you know, when they're trying to get these conversations out, uh, it can it can feel very incremental. People people, I know, for example, when I've had frustrations in my area of work, it, it's felt like we need these issues to be rectified extremely short term uh, but you know it, it, it can be difficult when you know either the corporation that you're you're trying to work with or you know people other people in the union with you have different mindsets about the timetable uh, so a, a more positive note uh, is is you know with the with the I keep going back to the Starbucks is you know they're not alone they're already a collective um, with, with, you know, I, I, a multitude of employees. I think the one on state has 25 to 30 right now, which is, is cut down, uh, but it's still a substantial amount of employees uh, to, to have on a union force. Uh, they're also one of two unionized Starbucks in Madison, and so to be able to collaborate um, with another institution that, or another collective uh, to make a larger collective that shares your interests and shares your understanding 
and and reaffirms you that the treatment that you're dealing with should be improved is is a very powerful thing. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been following the news that well, but I know this has been an issue with Starbucks workers nationwide for a couple of years, and I'm just kind of amazed that there hasn't been a nationwide union. I'm like, if we can't even in the city of Madison yet have two Starbucks come together to unionize, it's like, poof, that national goal seems really far away. Yeah, well, I know I'm working off of headlines here, so I don't want to make any <laughs> strong statements, but I know that Starbucks at large has not had the most positive public reputation when it comes to handling unions. And, um, you know, by the fact that both of these unions are still established in Madison, I am encouraged to believe they're putting forth a good faith effort. Um, but nationwide, they have been putting forth a, a less, you know, mutually beneficial way of resolving these issues. Yeah, I think it also has to do with, like, our federal labor laws. I, I don't know the exact details, but I know that, like, um, the unions don't have a lot of power to, like, demand concessions, like, in court or anything. And um, I think it's just, like, for some reason, like, as a society, we have an aver like, we're, we're, we don't, we have an aversion to unions, like, as if, like, if Starbucks unionizes, we, nobody would be able to afford drinks. Like, th I feel like that's sort of, like, w where people's mind go. But, like, in reality, the price of labor is just, like, a small proportion of the price it takes to run a place. And, like, I just, I wish, like, we could understand, like, it is possible to, like, have growth and unions like other countries have done it um and like when they the auto workers union was in its prime after world war ii um the economy was great and like i get it like that's probably correlation and not causation but just like the notion that you can't have both at the same time is just insane to me patently false yeah i think too like the success of this even on a local level like just to kind of help bring that in like anybody who's worked in fast food or food service can relate to that idea of like out of product understaffed and I think seeing the success of this union at least so far and based on those ideas I think I think can be inspiring towards people in not like not just Starbucks workers but kind of workers in that people work in that industry across like across the city and across the state and even outside of it and I think seeing that garner a lot of public support it's just it's really good yeah i think that's a really hopeful note to sort of end on as well um because unfortunately we're out of time so we're gonna have to wrap up here um but before we get into our closings i'll throw in a little fact here too do y'all know why uw madison is called the badgers so it actually started because the uw or not, sorry, not UW. It actually started because in the southeastern part of the state, running into Illinois, 
um, mining used to be super popular, and it was lead mining in particular. And a lot of these men that would go down into the mines would live in the mines and stay in there for ages and ages. And they'd build homes down there so they could work and be more efficient. And when they came out from under these mines, they like had soot all over their face and they looked like badgers. So that's why we're the badgers. But why I'm saying that is because the lead miners in southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois actually were like key players in getting uni- unionization for miners in America. Um, so that's our fun little fact of the day. If any listeners are interested, um, you c- there's more information on the TAA website about um, their history of the Teachers Association. On the TAA UW-Madison website, they have the history of their project, the specific letter that they're sending, opportunities to sign that petition, and a couple more articles covering their specific stories about people involved, um, which has been covered by Tone Madison, Cap Times, and Wisconsin State Journal. Thank you, lovely guests, for joining. Do you have anything else to add for us today before we wrap up? Um, the Starbucks union I spoke about is called Starbucks Work is United. Just putting it out there um, as, as you know, a little piece of information or context. Lovely. Okay, <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Um, we will have an episode coming out later as well um, on arts and music as a form of resistance. So stay tuned. <laughs>